Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic is Compassionate Friends, Finding Hope Through Service. And our second guest is Tom Baer. After the murder of his son, Thomas, on the campus of the University of Tennessee in 1988, Tom Baer and his wife, Margaret, became fierce advocates for college campus safety in Tennessee and at the national level, getting legislation passed in the state and in Congress to make college campuses safer. They didn't stop there. They also took up crime victims' rights. Tom now serves on the National Board of Directors for the Compassionate Friends. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hi. Thank you, Heidi. Hi, Tom. It's uh, great to have you on the show, and it is also great to be on the board of the Compassionate Friends with you. Um, wanted to talk to you a little bit about your son's death. He was uh, murdered on the campus. Uh, how did that happen? Yes, he was. It was the day the students returned to school in 1988 uh, at the fraternity house, and as many of the fraternities did, they would have a keg of beer. There was an intruder, a young man who was not a student, like to hang around the campus. He came over looking for beer. Uh, the brothers got him to leave, and he had pulled a knife. So the, they called the police. The police came and then went looking for the young man. Uh, they actually found him but didn't recognize him and turned him loose across the street. He came back to the fraternity house, tried to get in again. My son was standing at the door to keep him out, and the young man pulled a knife and stabbed him in the heart. The police arrived on the scene 12 seconds later, and they captured his assailant. So the young man was jailed immediately, and we got a second-degree murder conviction uh, 11 months later. Mm Mm-hmm. Eleven months, that's pretty early. It was, in fact, there were no continuances at all in the trial. Uh-huh. But, but on the other side, eleven months must have seemed like an eternity for this to go on. I mean, I'm just wondering what your life looked like during those eleven months. Well, life pretty much became a disaster for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived in Louisville, Kentucky at the time. Uh, we had lived in Knoxville before, and that's why our son had chosen to go to the University of Tennessee. And we had difficulty getting information from the the campus police. Now, this was handled by the campus police, not Mm. the city police or the county sheriff. Because in Tennessee, state university police forces are chartered police forces and have every bit as much power as the city police or the county sheriffs do. And so they were handling it. We couldn't get any information about what was going on. I, I was going to say, I would think campus police would want to keep everything really, really quiet. Is that true? That's true. Okay. Uh, we had great difficulty getting information and finding out what was going on. Uh, a good friend of mine in Louisville happened to be uh, uh, a prominent attorney, asked me what he could do, and I said, help me find out what's going on. Well, Shortly after my attorney made phone calls, I started getting phone calls from the university, from uh, top university officials asking me to to quit making waves. Mm -hmm. Uh, At about the same time, we saw on a national TV show uh, Howard and Connie Cleary, the parents of Jeannie Cleary, who had been raped and murdered in her dorm room at Lehigh in 1986. 
they are the founders of Security on Campus Incorporated, which is a nonprofit nationwide company that uh, promotes campus safety. We worked with the Clearies and were able to get a bill through the Tennessee legislature uh, in early 1989, only about six months after Tommy's death, to improve campus safety in Tennessee. And Tennessee became only the second state after Pennsylvania to have that type of law. Wow. Uh, we continued to work together with the Clearies, and in 1990, we got the bill through the Congress, and it was the Student Right to Know and Campus Security Act of 1990, which was the beginning of the uh, what became the rules put out by the Department of Education for campus safety. Mm-hmm. And what happens if the universities choose not to comply? They lose their federal funds. Mm-hmm. So the first teeth we put in it was put in jeopardy their federal funds. It took another 10 years to get uh, and three more amendments to get more teeth into the law. So you've been working on that the whole time? We have. We've worked on this continually from 1988 on. Uh, the teeth now are that the uh, Department of Education can issue uh, uh, fines up to $25,000 a day for noncompliance with the rules and regulations. Uh, and But you still have to kind of keep on it for well, we uh, do. to and keep it going. That's what Security on Campus Incorporated does is they, they watch nationally what goes on on all the campuses. They review the uh, statistics. They also run training programs. Uh, just yesterday uh, at Temple University, there were over 300 uh, educators from uh, higher learn- institutions of learning that were there for a seminar taught by a senior vice president from security on campus to teach these people how to comply with the uh, what's uh, informally known as the Genie Cleary Act. Yeah, this has got to be a very hot issue with everything that's been going on nationally for the past couple of years. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think back to Virginia Tech, I think to so many things that have gone on. Um, what about what do you think could have been done differently the night that Thomas died to prevent his death? Well, the first thing is in Tennessee, it's against the law to have alcohol on campus. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So the fact that they had alcohol there had the the kegs of beer, uh, not with university blessing, but with sort of a benign neglect. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, they chose not to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we put a lot of pressure on the university, and uh, they now do enforce the rules. In fact, one of the things that's now a local issue here is for non-college events, they're wanting to uh, open up the basketball arena here, Thompson Bowling Arena, which seats about 40,000 people, uh, when they they have concerts and things to allow them to sell beer. That was proposed, and the whole proposal has been withdrawn because the university got such a hue and cry from the public here that uh, we don't really want that. This is the university. You've got a no-alcohol policy. Mm-hmm. So, so it sounds like that your anger, uh, um, were you angry when he was killed? I mean, did you have a lot of anger? Did have a lot of anger. Uh, it was angry that Tommy was dead. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learned pretty quickly that the young man that killed him uh, had been a troubled youth. Uh, 
and uh, there was little or no premeditation that you could see, and the young man needed some help. Well, he got a lot of that help in jail. Mm-hmm. So so first. you dealt with your anger by becoming an advocate, would you say? Because Heidi and I always talk about how men tend to maybe do. Well, I'm, I've always been a doer. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, my wife uh, was also very much a doer. She spotted what was going on. Uh, and she's the one that saw the TV show. And she became uh, a continuous fierce, fierce advocate for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Now, when did you guys start going to Compassionate Friends? We started going to Compassionate Friends within the first year. Uh, yeah, because we I was in... wondering how you took care you know, the anger and the advocacy, and then there's the personal pain well, of, of dealing of with that. Well, one of the things that uh, we learned somewhere along the path, and I don't, can't say when it happened, that we had to somehow separate the work we were doing uh, from dealing with our own grief. Mm-hmm. Because Candy Leitner, you know, who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving, told Heidi and I that um, she de- she delayed her own grief with MAD. Um, but it sounds like you were able to go into your grief with compassionate friends, which is interesting. It's a... Uh, it, for our audience out there, if they're doing advocacy work or thinking about it, they might think about their own personal. Well, you really have to think of your own personal, but I will tell you that we got stuck. Mm-hmm. We got stuck by the judicial system. We got the conviction, mm-hmm. and then we were putting our, and a 17-year sentence was issued, and we started putting our efforts into uh, trying to heal. Mm-hmm. I had been recalled to active duty in the Navy for a year, and long about uh, March of 91, I got a phone call from a reporter in Knoxville that said, do you know that Jeff Underwood is coming up for parole? And this is less than three years after Tommy was killed. Wow. And we said no. We then immediately began to putting together what it was going to take to be able to oppose parole. It turns out in East Tennessee, we were the first people ever to show up at a parole hearing to oppose parole. Is that right? It had never happened in the eastern part of Tennessee. That's amazing to me. They did not know how to run an opposed parole hearing. Wow. Uh, his parole was denied, uh, but he came up again quickly. Well, by this time, uh, we learned how to put on a real campaign. We went through six parole hearings in five years, keeping this oh in jail. He finally got out after seven years, two months. That's unbelievable. So he killed your son and only served seven years? Served seven years, Of a months. sentence. What now, was the sentence? The, bad, the sentence was 17. Oh, my goodness. The, the bad part of that was, at seven years, two months, he had served the average time for second-degree murderers in Tennessee. He served... He served seven years, two months, and between the three-year point and the seven-year, two-month point, we went through six parole hearings. Wow. That's unbelievable. So how did you feel when he got parole? And We knew it was going to happen at some point. We had asked that he stay in until he was 30. He got out at 27. One of the things we had done was researched uh, the data on uh, recidivism, of, of criminals, and mm-hmm. we found that there is a direct correlation between the age of the offender 
and when they get out, whether they recommit offenses or not. Mm-hmm. And it really drops down rather dramatically. And if people get to the age 30, uh, there's a much lower chance of uh, them committing another crime. Now, this now, young man has you not, by the way, committed any other crime. Strange. When he got out, were you concerned that he may retaliate? Because you kind of kept him in as long as you could. No, because we felt we got to learn a little bit more about him through the parole hearings. Mm-hmm. And we came to learn that he really wasn't a bad kid. He was a kid that had been misguided as a youth. Uh, he came from a pretty good family. His father mm-hmm. had been a police officer. Wow. And he had gone the wrong way and uh, mm-hmm. through his uh, activities in the prison, and he had been on some work release programs and working with AA and NA, uh, he had turned his life around somewhat. So and he's not been in any trouble since he got out. Now, do I hear some forgiveness there? That's, that's, thank you, Mom. That's what I was hearing. Yeah. So you feel like you found some forgiveness? Yeah, we were looking to to hear from him during the parole uh, hearings. Some sign of remorse on his part. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that he was trying to get there, but his attorney and his father were not letting him make I was going to say, sometimes the attorneys tell him not to do that. Well, uh they did that. Yeah, not to get in touch with the family. Yeah. Well, tell me, um, just for the sake of um, time, ha- what happened with Compassionate Friends? And, and d- you said you got stuck. Well, we got stuck in our grief because the uh, you can only go so far toward uh, through the grief process when you keep being jerked back by the, uh, the system. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to people out there who are in this situation right now? to work very hard at separating your dealing with the justice system and in whatever form and separate that from doing your own grief work. Mm-hmm. And would you uh, say Compassionate Friends might be a good way to do that? Compassionate Friends is, is a great way to do that. Uh, what we found in Compassionate Friends was people that w- are, were people that were willing to listen to our story over and over and over when I first started telling the story, and people hated to sit next to me on an airplane, it took me 45 minutes. <laughs> I can tell the story of Tommy's murder now in about two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. And the more times you tell it, uh, the closer to acceptance you get. And it's not always easy for, for a guy, particularly, to find an audience, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> uh the one thing a lot of people don't understand, and the press, as you know, like to use the word closure. Well, did the trial get you closure? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. If bereaved parents can do anything that have had to deal with the justice system is to teach people that uh, there's no such thing as closure. Well, and we had a guest on our show, Bob Niemeyer, who said closure is for bank accounts, not love accounts. Well, that's right. And, and real estate deals. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, uh, what, so uh, we, what I tend to tell people is it's it's like the the soldier that's gone to Iraq and he's lost a leg, and you fit him with a prosthesis. So when he's dressed up and pair of long pants and shoes, you can't tell he doesn't have a leg. Mm-hmm. So everybody says he's over it. 
not over it. Yeah. He's right. just learned to live with it. Yeah. So uh, what was your progress like with Compassionate Friends? You're on the board now. Were you active uh, with it, and do, would you have any recommendations for people as far as the organization goes? Or? I think they should find the nearest Compassionate Friends group and participate fully. Uh, we did that immediately. Uh, we were not afraid to look for help where help was needed, and uh, we recognized we needed it. Uh, I would recommend anybody that has the opportunity to go to the uh, national conference. There's no subject that we don't cover. Uh, I know a lot of people that uh, have been to their first national conference, and that was the first time that they felt like they could they could see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though it was a long tunnel. Now, do you see in your chapter um, men as some, are there more women in there, and do you see men more reluctant to come, and what would you say about that? The men are much more reluctant to come, and it's difficult to get them to come. Uh, I've called a number of them. Uh, our typical chapter meeting will have uh, a small meeting as if we only have 20 or 25 people. Mm-hmm. So you have a big chapter. We've got a big chapter, and the chapter's been here in Knoxville since 1986. And I would uh, think if men see other men there, then you're going to get more men in the That's future. right. And for a long time, we had a huge number of people whose kids had been killed. At one point, we had nine families whose children had been murdered. Wow. Uh, a lot of chapters. When, when we went to our first uh, uh, annual conference, we only found uh, maybe half a dozen people nationally who had had children murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Uh, Dr. Richard Dew and I uh, started conducting uh, sharing sessions just on our own, and afterwards we're asked to now speak and talk about uh, healing after homicide. Well, you know, I think one thing about Compassionate Friends for me is you come to realize that um, there's a certain depth of loss that it doesn't matter how they were killed. Absolutely. Uh, no matter how your child died, that's the worst thing that could happen to you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, whether it's a miscarriage or it's a, uh, a 95-year-old mother with a 70-year-old son who's killed in a car accident, their grief's the same. Mm-hmm. And it's their grief. It's their personal grief. Someone asked me, uh, you know, what I thought about uh, a spouse's grief versus a child's grief. I said, the grief you have is the worst grief you have. Mm-hmm. And I know. somebody who has both lost a child and a spouse, uh, I had heard this from other people, but I know now personally losing the child hurts worse. Mm-hmm. You expect at some point that one of you in your marriage will go. Mm-hmm. Maybe when you're 80 or 90, you never expect to lose the child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before we close our show, do you have one piece of advice for guys out there uh, and, and families in general? And maybe you could say something a little bit about siblings, too. Well, for guys and siblings, because in a lot of ways they have the same response. They don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was fortunate... I'd been, spent a lot of time with the Boy Scouts. I really didn't have to talk about it, but I was surrounded by a bunch of men that had worked with me in Scouts that became sort of a support group outside of Compassionate Friends. And 
they weren't afraid to bring up my son's name. And for the siblings, I know you're not going to talk to your parents, but talk to your friends. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to your teacher. Mm-hmm. It's so, not your job as a sibling to become the parent mm-hmm. to the parent. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a good point, isn't it, Hyde? Absolutely, I, I like that. You know, talk to somebody and, and don't. We're always wanting to take care of our parents and worried so much about our parents that I think sometimes we put our own grief on hold, just as you do with the homicide investigation, et cetera, yeah. and the trial. We put our own grief on hold sometimes and don't take care of ourselves enough and look at our own grief. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great having you on, and I look forward to seeing you at Nashville. Okay, looking forward to seeing you too, Gloria. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks, Tom. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.